Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Financial Times. We value your feedback. Please go to ft.com forward slash alpha survey and fill out a short survey. Hello and welcome to Alpha Chat, the FT's business and economics podcast. I'm Shannon Bond. We've got a great lineup this week. An extraordinary rise and a spectacular fall. That's what two Canadian reporters have called the Blackberry Saga in their book, Losing the Signal. We'll talk to one of the authors, Sean Silkoff. Then the IMF has added the renminbi to its special drawing rights basket this week. What does that really mean? Then Star Wars creator George Lucas wants to give the city of Chicago a new museum, but it's causing some outrage among public groups who are not so happy the city is leasing him land for just $10. First off, what happened to BlackBerry? Amy Keene, you've come out from behind the, the mixing board. Yeah, I managed to get a microphone to, to lean all the way over to, to where I sit. Good thing our studio isn't that big. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we, we sent you to, to talk about BlackBerry, not just because you're Canadian. No, it's more than that. It's uh, I mean, I, it's a phenomenal business story as as uh, Losing the Signal, the title that Sean Silkoff and his co-author Jackie McNish wrote. It's an extraordinary rise and a spectacular fall. So uh, I caught up with Sean Silkoff on the phone, actually, from Toronto. All right, let's listen to your chat. Hi, Sean. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. So before we get into the meat of the BlackBerry story, I want to mention that Losing the Signal has made its way onto a number of Best Business Books of the Year lists, one of which is, of course, the F.T. McKinsey shortlist for Best Business Book of the Year. What do you think it is about the story of RIM, the story of BlackBerry, the company that made email mobile? What makes it such an engaging corporate tale? It's both a rise and fall story of a company as well as a partnership. And I think what really speaks to a lot of people um, who've read the book is that it's it's about these two very fascinating individuals who really couldn't uh, have less in common with one another, Jim Balsillie and Mike Lazaridis, who uh, really created a $20 billion company, but more importantly, forged an entire industry that has really uh, uh, reshaped the planet uh, and uh, or certainly the way we communicate with each other as human beings. They solved a problem that, um, th- that had been bedeviling a lot of uh, major device makers in the 1990s, which was how do you put a personal communications device in people's hands that they, they want to use that isn't just a kind of a nice diversion but, a, but an essential tool. Uh, and having created the BlackBerry, um, they reached the, this pinnacle of success and then seem to lose it all. Of course, not everything. Uh, BlackBerry is still a going concern, a, a publicly traded company, still very much alive. But it, it's nowhere near the, the perch um, it was at. So I think there's, um, there's certainly that, that element of, of um, the rough and tumble of technology and, and of the forging of this industry, mobile wireless data, which uh, is now, of course, defined by Apple and, and Google and Samsung. Um, and just the the 
pace of change uh, as well about the story is quite astonishing. When you think about, um, I mean, it took BlackBerry just a few years to get to a billion in sales, uh, a billion US. And in about 10 years, they went from one to 20, all the way back down to 3 billion in annual revenue. So that's that's quite a ride. So you mentioned the very sort of unlikely pairing of the two CEOs, Lazaridis and and Bill Silly. Can you just talk about that a little bit more? I think that was one of many fascinating elements of the book is describing these very sort of polar opposite characters that that for a good majority of their partnership really worked quite well in tandem together. They really did. It, it, it was to the point where the two of them could go into a meeting and finish each other's sentences. The, they had uh, little cues and ticks that they could um, – where they could communicate with each other, where there was a foot tap or crinkling a piece of paper. I mean, they really were sort of copacetic together and, and very innately trusted each other. And yet they had nothing in common. They didn't really, they didn't socialize at all. Mike started off, uh, he was the boy genius. We talk in the book about how he uh, built a record player out of uh, Lego when he was four years old that actually... Uh, yeah, he was the boy engineer. The boy engineer. Yeah, a, a very calm, um, of extremely confident presence he was the kid when things went wrong, whether it was the uh, a lab uh, blowing up at school or if a teacher's um, hi-fi system wasn't working in the basement, they would call on Mike and he would show up and fix the stereo or fix the lab. Very calm. He really he was very good at figuring things out and um, enamored of computers in high school. But he had a, a very influential teacher who told them, never mind computers, the person who figures out how to manage uh, – how to marry – computers and wireless technology, they're going to create something special. So we never forgot that. He started a business. He dropped out of fourth year university uh, to start research in motion. But he wasn't um, he wasn't a great business person. He was more of a technologist. So when he laid eyes on Jim Balsilli, they, they described it as kind of like when you, when you meet your future spouse. Jim, a very different character, hard-driving business person, also a, a young entrepreneur, cocky but insecure, a very accomplished. He uh, he made it to Harvard Business School, uh, but uh, there he felt like a, his class. He described it to us as feeling like he was a class of eighty nine future Nobel Prize winners and one fraud, and he was the fraud. Instead of going to Wall Street like most of his classmates out of Harvard, instead he uh, went to the small town of Waterloo. Nobody could really understand why he did that, but he got to be number two at a reasonably sized technology company, about 700 people. Uh, one day he was sent to um, he was sent to uh, basically squeeze a supplier. That supplier was Research in Motion. Uh, Jim saw in Mike a, um, a brilliant technologist who is externally, extraordinarily ambitious but needed someone with business skills uh, to, to, to really take his company forward. And Mike saw in Jim someone who had those skills and, and could bring that to bear. Can you explain a bit about the original business model or the original plan for the very first mobile email device that they brought to market? Right. Well, um, this is a company that went contract to contract really in their early days. And one of the contracts was from a Canadian cable company called Rogers Communications that had just bought a wireless data network from Ericsson and wanted to put it into play and needed a company to help them do things like write the language for it and build uh, modem cards and that sort of thing. So RIM did all these little things to help make this technology work. Mobile data in the early 90s is a very unsexy business. It's not like today where you're ordering an Uber cab or uh, or liking things on Pinterest or uh, watching a movie on Netflix. Back in those days, wireless data was 
Um, and the devices were maybe the size of a television set and they would be bolted into service trucks. And it's something that, say, IBM or a cable company could use to uh, to communicate wirelessly with its service technicians. So RIM helped uh, build these uh, – build out this network. But it wasn't – it was a very niche business and the telcos that owned these types of networks had sunk a lot of money in for not a lot of return. You mentioned Apple a bit earlier. If we fast forward a few years from that first mobile email device that RIM produced and then go to, you know, 2007 when Steve Jobs makes the fascinating announcement about the new iPhone, RIM and, and from your book, it seems as though Lazaridis in particular didn't take the launch of the new iPhone or the, the presence of the iPhone very seriously at first. There were four reasons for that. Um, for one thing, Mike knew network uh, physics extremely well. Um, and he knew uh, devices extremely well, uh, ha- having perfected the BlackBerry. Mike saw that uh, having full browsing ca- capacity would just drain drain the networks and, and, and clog them up and lead to service problems. So when he sees the first iPhone, his first reaction is, one, uh, this is going to this is going to clog the AT and T network, and he was right about that because as soon as people started uh, using the iPhone on mass, uh, AT and T, uh, which had the exclusive for four years, developed all kinds of uh, problems. Their rating on uh, Consumer Reports went to, went to dead last. They and Apple were actually sued for uh, for dropped calls from unhappy customers. The battery uh, on the first iPhone was terrible. It lasted four hours. Um, so Mike was also right about that. This is, this is a technology that really sucked a lot of battery power out quickly. Uh, third, he thought people are not going to like typing on glass. And uh, some, including me, uh, will maintain that typing on a keyboard, a BlackBerry, is still a, a superior uh, typing experience to typing on glass. And fourth, he thought, well, this device isn't very secure. Um, he was right about all four of those things and he was right that uh, that enterprises wouldn't flock to this device. But I think what what we think is that um, you know he missed the bigger picture, which is that BlackBerry Research Emotion having really created this massive market for mobile data had kind of awoken the giants in Silicon Valley. And they had thought long and hard about what the next uh, the next wave in wireless data communications would be. Um, and this would be a shift into consumer a shift to more uh, popular services that you were going to be available on on the on the web and and particularly apps. Rim had been so busy uh, building their company and taking a winning product and 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 growing their sales like crazy uh, around the world that they they didn't realize how quickly things would uh, would turn against them. Now, just to go back a little bit earlier, before before iPhone was launched. There was a drawn-out patent lawsuit with U.S. company, I believe they were called NTP, and they they essentially accused RIM of of using its mobile email technology. Now, this from you know from the story you, you tell of how this imposed tremendous emotional and physical stress on both of the CEOs. Do you see this as sort of the beginning of the end for RIM under the leadership of Lazaridis and Bosili? The NTP trial and uh, its aftermath, which dragged on for a few years, really did. Uh, it really was the first um, the first demonstration that this company was quite vulnerable and had a devastating uh, effect on both of them, uh, gave them both a sense of the potential mortality of their, their company. Um, and both of them suffered um, stress-related um, issues from it um, at either end of the, of the process. The other thing that was even uh, more damaging because it came right on the heels of this was a stock options repricing um, uh, scandal and RIM kind of became the poster child for this uh, issue. A lot of tech companies were caught out by the repricing of options. 
because BlackBerry, uh, because Research Emotion was an email company, there was an extensive uh, paper trail of communications about all the repricing actions they had taken. And, um, you know, they weren't allowed to really talk to each other for a while. They were being interrogated by regulators, the Department of Justice. And uh, this really represented the fundamental schism in the partnership. Uh, remember, Mike had relied on and trusted Jim uh, to run the company's uh, financial and sales affairs. And he felt like he'd been, uh, I guess, betrayed by by Jim um, and was worried that his company might actually be taken away from him or worse because of something that he really didn't even understand or, or know. Jim, for his part, felt like Mike was uh, essentially betraying him because he sensed that Mike wasn't standing shoulder to shoulder with him. Uh, and because they couldn't really talk about this um, – uh, due to the legal advice they had and, and the sensitivity of the regulatory matter, this really created a schism between the two of them. I, they still communicated day to day on business matters, but as people inside the company said, you could tell mom and dad were fighting. One thing I have to ask is that you know you got you and and your co-author had tremendous access to both Mike Lazaridis and Jim Balsilli. They've spoken to very few people, reporters in particular, about. BlackBerry, um, especially, you know, outside of a product launch or earnings releases. Can you talk to me a bit about how you got this kind of unprecedented access to the two? Well, like many of the world's business media, the, our newspaper, The Globe and Mail, sent reporters down to Waterloo after uh, Jim and Mike stepped down uh, as co-CEOs in early 2012 to try and answer the question, what happened to this company? And uh, very few people got very far. I mean, we we had a team of reporters that was able to pull some scraps out here and there. But I think this was a company under siege and uh, it had become kind of the corporate uh, whipping boy in, in some ways. And I think people were very gun shy and, and didn't really trust the media and um, didn't want to see another story that denigrated this company they all loved and and, and had been part of. And, and many of them were going through almost like a post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, we got a break from a, a, a very senior um, uh, ex-research uh, uh, emotion uh, employee who reached out to us um, several months later. And, and, and like in classic reporting, you just you take a little bit of time and you, you build up a relationship with the source. And um, eventually, we were able, um, over a year later, in September 2013, to publish. Uh, a fairly substantial story. It was about six thousand words long. That, that really got to the root of some of the issues that led to the led to the company's downfall. And um, uh, in that story, we were able to uh, to convince Mike Lazaridis uh, to speak with us, and we got a comment from Jim Balsilli as well. But I, I really feel like we we had we'd done our homework, and uh, we gained the trust of some sources who were willing to open up uh, to us and and. And, and really point to some of the, the the points, the key points that led to the company's downfall. And that story, I think, um, uh, won us a lot of goodwill with uh, with potential uh, sources for the book. And we we came to Mike and Jim afterward, and we sort of said, "Well, we're interested in doing a book that doesn't just look at the downfall and and celebrate failure," which is, I think, what a lot of people felt the reporters had done. Dancing on on Blackberry's grave, as it were, um, as far as some people were concerned, but really telling a fully fledged story. Um, before you could have the downfall, you had to have the creation of a twenty billion dollar company, uh, a commercially successful business that redefines an industry and 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 um, uh, it becomes a technology leader. And there's very few of those in Canada. 
uh, historically. So I think there was a lot of pride and they wanted to know that we would give equal hearing and weight to the story of the rise as to the story of the fall. I think both Jim and Mike and others felt like there were a lot of lessons uh, to learn on the way up and the way down. And I think there was also an understanding that this was a book where we would really try to kind of document a story for the ages that that everyone uh, had been a part of and 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 we're almost proud to be I guess we're we're proud to be associated with. Will Blackberry survive even if it's as a shadow of its former self? Well, it's surviving today. It's um uh, it, it's it's run by a very uh capable and uh and experienced uh, turnaround CEO named John Chen who who comes from Silicon Valley and and has a has a great track record. The company has um uh it has assets, it has a lot of cash. Um, it has a strategy that I don't know that we've seen if it's fully successful or not. I mean, they're still making blackberries. I don't think we've seen evidence that the world needs needs or wants more more blackberry devices. Uh, they only command about a a third of one percent of the global smartphone market, and there there aren't that many companies that have such a little share in their business that remain in that business for very long. So. Um, I think the jury is still out. They've got a new device called the Priv. It's the first one finally right, that uses Android. Yeah, that uses yeah. Android. Um, so perhaps there's uh, perhaps that'll put some wind in their sails. On the other hand, they've now put out a series of devices under John Chen that really haven't moved the needle. Their market share has continued to fall. Their sales have continued to fall. Um, they still derive a significant portion of their revenues. I think about forty percent from um, service fees that they charge on old devices. Well, as those old devices come out of circulation uh the new devices don't have that fee um that fee attached to them so that's a significant piece of the top line that's uh that's going to go away blackberry has time it has apps, assets and it has options what's not clear is a strategy to rebuild itself into a a giant company that will change the world um but uh, we certainly did not write the uh uh, we were not writing the eulogy for BlackBerry with this book. It's still very much a going concern. I think, as others have, <laughs> that's right. So I, I think it's up to to John Chen to uh, to convince the world that uh, that uh, this company will um, sort of have a new uh, a new growth uh, strategy and reason to excite investors. But I don't think we've seen the uh, uh, complete evidence of that yet. Okay, Sean Silkoff, co-author along with Jackie McNish of Losing the Signal. The Untold Story Behind the Extraordinary Rise and Spectacular Fall of BlackBerry. Sean, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Next up, Alphaville columnist Matt Klein is with me in the studio here in New York. Hi, Matt. Hi, Shannon. Thanks for having me. So this week, the IMF added China's renminbi to its SDR, its special drawing rights basket, um, which is used to value the IMF's essentially their de facto currency. What does this mean? Well, that's a great question, and I didn't know myself, so I talked to Patrick Chovanek. He is the uh, chief strategist and managing director at Silvercrest and is a noted China expert and also generally knowledgeable about the global economy. All right. Let's listen to what he had to say. Welcome, Patrick. My first question is, what is a special drawing right, and why should we care? Yeah, this is an interesting story because uh, you've got to talk about, first of all, what is a special drawing right, and then something that people assume they know, which is what is a reserve currency. So special drawing right was actually something that, that came out of the brain of John Maynard Keynes when, when he attended the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. And they, the IMF was essentially his idea, and he wanted to create a super currency that would be used to settle trade imbalances between countries. He didn't quite get what he wanted, but he got kind of a shadow of it. And the SDR is the shadow, which is essentially 
It's like a coupon issued by the IMF to countries that can function as part of their reserves. And it is valued according to a weighted basket of currencies, hard currencies. It's not really clear that you could claim those currencies. It's not actually backed by those currencies, but it's valued according to them. So in practice, in other words, this is not something that actually can be used on a regular basis. It's more of an, an accounting measure. Is that This is fair? something that uh, only central banks hold. And uh, to the extent that they hold it, it has value because they all agreed that it has value. And uh, I am only aware of one entity that actually keeps its accounts in SDRs, which is the Bank of International Settlements, BIS, in Switzerland. So then in that case, uh, why does it matter in particular one way or another which currencies are included in this basket? Well, I would argue that it doesn't, uh, as much as a lot of people think. The argument for why it does is that uh, it's sort of a benchmark for what is an acceptable reserve currency. And if you're included in that group, then there is a presumption among central banks that these are the currencies that you might want to hold as reserves. But there's nothing binding about that. And there's nothing that makes that a practical reality either. And I think that's actually the most important and overlooked fact that uh, there are practical barriers to a, a currency such as the renminbi serving as a reserve currency as well as ones that are based upon people's desires. Sure. So let's start, what are these barriers? Well, the first thing is that uh, it really there are two things that are necessary for a currency, any currency, to serve as a reserve currency. The first and most obvious is that it should be desirable. People should want to hold it. The renminbi is desirable in the sense that a lot of people want to buy what China produces. It's not so desirable in another respect, which is it's very difficult. If you've got lots of it, where do you put it? Um, if you've got lots of dollars, you can invest them in a very huge and liquid treasury market. Sure. If you have lots of renminbi, then the the markets are not nearly as liquid and they're not nearly as large. So that's a problem, and, it, and that could be addressed by developing China's capital markets. The other problem that people overlook is that not only does the currency have to be desirable, it also has to be accessible. People outside of China have to be able to accumulate balances, large balances, of renminbi. How do they do that? Either China runs large and chronic trade deficits um, and, and exports money abroad in that sense, or it exports its currency by large investments or loans outside of China. Now, we are seeing more of that, but it's interesting. I mean, China's growth model up until this point has been based on exactly the opposite. It's been based on running large trade surpluses and attracting lots of foreign investment into China. So China has been a currency importer, not a currency exporter. So in order to supply the rest of the world with renminbi, China's relationship with the rest of the global economy would have to change dramatically. And while that's possible, it's not clear that the Chinese have really wrapped their minds around what that would mean and whether they want to do that. So, I mean, these seem like some pretty significant impediments to being an actual reserve currency. Why do you think the IMF actually decided to include them and not, say, the Australian dollar and Canadian dollar, which are a relatively larger share of actual central bank reserves? I think because the Chinese wanted it really bad. Now you can ask, why did the Chinese right. want it? I think partly it has to do with a misconception about what is a reserve currency and what the significance of reserve currencies are. There's a Back in the 1960s, there was this fixation in France with the, the dollar being the reserve currency and 
De Gaulle called it extravagant privilege. Um, and he, they felt that this status gave the United States significant financial and economic advantages. I don't think that's true. I think it, it, having your currency function as a reserve currency involves trade-offs. There are some advantages. There are some disadvantages. But I think the Chinese have inherited this kind of political economy view that uh, having a reserve currency is a very powerful thing. And so uh, that has been sold to the leadership in China. And one of the reasons why it may have been sold to the leadership in China is that the, the PBOC, China's central bank, is definitely a force for kind of liberalization and reform. They want to open up China's financial system. If they went to the leadership and said, we want to open up the financial system, they would probably get a lot of pushback. If, on the other hand, they go to the leadership and say, we want the renminbi to be the most important currency in the world, then the leadership says, okay, that sounds really good. Mm -hmm. And they go about their liberalizing agenda that way because a lot of things that you would have to do to make the currency functional in that way are consistent with that. So, you know, in some ways... Renminbi internationalization and the goal of renminbi being a reserve currency may have been a vehicle uh, for a policy agenda that's not necessarily widely shared or even widely understood among China's leadership in terms of what it actually means for China's economy. And presumably the IMF is at least somewhat party to this and attempting to perhaps encourage the reformers by including it into the SDR when it's not necessarily meets the same criteria as the other currencies? Possibly that. Uh, I think there are lots of different motives. Maybe they want to encourage reform. Maybe it's easy to throw them a bone because it doesn't really matter that much in terms of the, the way the rest of the global economy functions. And also, you know, maybe it locks the Chinese into a more responsible currency policy. So there has been a lot of concern expressed recently that the Chinese might in, engage in a dramatic devaluation of the renminbi in order to gain trade advantage, in order to try to boost their economy up. And that would come at the expense of other economies, including the U.S. Uh, it's still possible for them to do this, but I think it would come, after their inclusion in the SDR basket, it would come at a lot of political cost. I mean, the, the whole value of this for them is the soft power perception of the renminbi being a significant currency. If they suddenly devalue it, and, and, and by a large amount, then that's egg all over the face of the IMF. It really calls their judgment into question. Central banks around the world would actually, if they're holding SDRs, the value of those SDRs would go down, and that's pretty much for everyone. So would China want to do that? I think it sets up a political barrier, not an economic barrier, not a financial barrier, but a political barrier to China engaging in kind of beggar-thy-neighbor currency policies. And that might be a reason why other countries sort of figured that this was a way to rope China into... Uh, more responsible behavior. Linking this a little bit to the other sort of big issue with China and the IMF, which is the capital weights, do you see this as being possibly some kind of indication of maybe willingness to move in that direction as well? Or I mean, right now, by sort of the normal metrics, China's has relatively low weight relative in particular to European countries. Is this sort of a, an early sign? Europe, well, the euro was the, the big loser in, in terms of the existing SDR weights to make room for China. Is this sort of an indication of where they're going, you think? Oh, I don't know. And, and I mean, I think that there's been a lot of discussion about China having a greater role at the IMF, but the blockage there has not been kind of the acceptance of China as a more significant economy. The, the problem there has been the politics in, in the U.S. and particularly in the U.S. Congress. So, uh, you know, I, I think the interesting thing here is that there are a lot of different agendas. There are um, a lot of misconceptions about what SDR status means for China, what it means for the rest of the world. And all of these things 
are involved in this complex interplay of perception and reality. Uh, and the result, I think, is not a lot, actually. I, I think that the result and, – and, and look, markets this, this week kind of shrugged it off and went, hmm, sounds like it should be important, but I don't know how it is important. Right. And I think actually that was sort of the appropriate response because uh, what matters for the role of China's currency in the world is not the imprimatur of the IMF. It is not a declaration, a political declaration. It is how China's economy evolves and how its relationship with the global economy evolves. That is what determines the role that China's currency will play in the global economy. Patrick, thanks very much for coming to talk to us about this. You're welcome. What is George Lucas building in Chicago? The Star Wars creator has sparked a fight in the city over his plans to build a $300 million museum on the shore of Lake Michigan. FT correspondent Neil Munchie joins me from Chicago to talk about the project. Hi, Neil. Hey, Shin. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. What exactly is George Lucas doing? So he has offered the city, uh, and the city's gladly accepted, a 300-square-foot museum that'll be placed on the lakefront should open by 2020 that's going to house his extensive collection of movie memorabilia and sort of 20th century pop art sort of popular art rather than pop art norman rockwell think comic books sort of the sunday funnies that kind of stuff and he's funding this all out of his own pocket he is. The The figures are a little less definitive for the Chicago project than they were for the original project he wanted to build, which was in his hometown of San Francisco. So he initially pitched the idea of building what is now called the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art to the Presidio Trust, um, which is a national park there. Right, right. That big park right by the Golden Gate Bridge. Right. And they all, there was a sort of a lot of hue and cry in San Francisco about the idea of giving this land to a billionaire and how the, you know, the Presidio is sacrosanct and that kind of stuff. And, but ultimately the, the museum project was rejected because its design and its specs didn't fit the specifications that the sort of the call for bids had set out. The folks in San Francisco, including, you know, uh, tech executives like Melissa Mayer and and uh, Eric Schmidt, the mayor, all really wanted this project. And the Presidio offered Lucas another spot in the Presidio for the museum. It was inland, and Lucas decided against it. And he opened up the sort of competition among cities for the museum to the rest of the country. And so how did uh, it end up in Chicago? He has a connection there, right? Right. So a couple years ago, George Lucas married Melody Hobson, who's a very prominent Chicagoan. She is the president of Ariel Investments, which is the biggest minority-owned asset manager in the country. She's also on the board of Starbucks and Estee Lauder. She chairs the board at DreamWorks, good friends with the Obamas, and a prominent backer of Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who really set his sights on this project as soon as it was opened up to the rest of the country because this is a massive project that will draw a lot of tourists and it's kind of free-ish, right? So it's hard to pass up. Right, because in addition to, to footing the bill for the museum itself, uh, George Lucas is also going to be endowing it, right? 
Right. And they he they haven't come out and said the exact dollar amount for the Chicago project, but for the San Francisco project, which was about a third of the size, it was going to be a four hundred million dollar endowment upon its opening and another four hundred million upon his death. So you can imagine we're talking about a, a very big project. Um I, I interviewed Melody Hobson about it, and she called it the biggest philanthropic gift to a city since the time of the robber barons. And it's really sort of, you know, Carnegie Hall, uh, the Met, the National Gallery. Like, these are the kind of things that rich people used to give cities. It doesn't really happen as much anymore that it's something of this scale. This isn't the naming rights of a room at the Met or right. something like that. Right. This is some serious money and, and, and a really big gift sort of within the context of, of Chicago philanthropy, right? So this plan has not been, well, I mean, as you say, uh, Melody Hobson is close with Rahm Emanuel. It seems like the political establishment in Chicago is backing it. What has been the public reaction? It, You know, it's sort of been two sides. So I think most people would say, well, yeah, let's take a museum. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's it, the way the project came about was almost as if, you know, it was a done deal. There was no public comment until after members of the public sort of asked questions about why a billionaire was getting a prime piece of lakefront real estate for $10 for a 99 year lease. You know, yeah, that, seems, that sounds a little, a little like the sort of the backroom dealing that Chicago is infamous for. Yeah. And it's, you know, Mayor Rahm Emanuel attended their wedding and their friends. It's a whole kind of thing. And it's one of those things where Chicago's lakefront is a big deal to Chicagoans. It's, you know, 30 miles of parks and beaches. And so to hand off part of it, even in, you know, next to a football stadium and buy another, buy a convention center to give part of it away without much public comment struck people as a little out of touch and a little bit much. And what about the the actual uh, proposed building itself? Um, you, you had some, you quoted some people with some colorful descriptions of it. Right. So it has been unfavorably compared with Jabba the Hutt. It, it's a really bold design. It's by a Chinese architect named Ma Yan Song. And folks like Frank Gehry have lauded it for being incredibly innovative, but it looks very out of place along the Chicago skyline, which is dominated by, you know, old school, sometimes art deco skyscrapers. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but along with all these other things, it was easy to sort of pick on this design pretty hard. So it's been called an intergalactic zit, um, you know, a volcano with a toilet seat on top of it. The Pulitzer Prize-winning architecture critic for the Tribune has not had many good things to say say about the design, but also I think he's he's more concerned as a lot of the folks against it are just of the idea of giving away this sort of prime area of the city. And are there alternate proposals for for what would be done? I mean, the space currently is a parking lot, right? You know, the alternative is to turn it into parkland, green space. The the area down there is a little crowded with stuff already. The Chicago Bears football stadium's right there. It in and of itself is uh, an architectural monstrosity. And McCormick Place, a giant convention center, is is on the other side. So it's already quite crowded and congested over there. And this will only, people think, make it worse. You know, Chicago's a big city and there are a lot of 
places in need of development, in need of tourist attractions. There's a hospital that's been vacant for years that, you know, massive hospital complex, maybe a mile from the proposed site that opponents of the project have proposed because it would help the neighborhood around there. And it's sort of an eyesore right now. Right. And it doesn't sound like the lakefront needs a lot more in the way of things going on there. So is this a done deal? Is this going to get built regardless? Yeah. There is a a lawsuit by a group called Friends of the Park. It relies on a 19th century sort of land usage law. And they they gained a victory last month because the judge said they had standing and is allowing the lawsuit to go forward. But Emmanuel has very strong support from the city council and his appointed commissions in the city. They've all okayed the project. And it's passed most of its major hurdles. Really, it's just this lawsuit. But uh, there are few people who think it's not going to happen at this point. Let's put it that way. Right. Well, listeners, uh, we'll put a link up to Neil's piece, which is going to be appearing in this week's FT Wealth, um, which has pictures of the proposed project and the full story. Neil, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Jen. And for our follow-up segment, Amelia Mahasek is back. Hi. Hello, Shannon. Hi. How's things? Good. You had a week off. Uh, yeah. I went to Nicaragua. It was a very interesting place to go. Warm. Um, warm. Uh, jungly. Um, it, yeah. It, it's coming along. It made me interested in the piece that you did last week with Rob, Robin Wigglesworth and Matt Klein on places that I know they have been on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Working holidays. <laughs> Jamaica and Greece. Well, mm. I think Matt Klein's trip to Greece, which they used as a good excuse to get into <laughs> the sovereign debt crisis in those countries or debt burdens of those two countries. And so I thought they were, I, I was at first thinking, oh, these guys, they're just talking about places they went on holidays. But actually it was, of course, a very interesting segment about how the IMF helps rebuild economies. Uh, what I was wondering though is, whether we can do some more about can the IMF really have an effect on right. getting a nation to change its government right. that might have been broken or lax for decades. Right. And uh, sort of one example is going well in this one place. In Jamaica. Is sort of yeah. thin. <laughs> exactly. And would that be a model for right. for other economies? So perhaps uh, when Cardiff comes back from Cuba, do a deep dive. He can do a deep dive and do his <laughs> do a Caribbean economy. That yeah. sounds good. It's uh, but it's interesting how the combination of having bad government and high debt leads to good holiday locations. <laughs> in general, maybe there's a correlation there. Yeah, Robin would know. Robin's good at that. Yeah, random we'll have to get him back on yeah. that kind of random correlation and that. SUV stories, I thought it was fantastic. I'm really interested that into whether the subject of whether millennials will have more cars or not. Mm-hmm. Are you going to get a car? I have a car. You have I'm a car. A, I'm an atypical millennial, I suppose. I'm also like an atypical New Yorker because I have a car. But Where do you park? On the street, which is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> but hang on, you. I thought you were a bicycle riding Brooklyn bicycle are, riding we, millennial household, but now you've moved. But now we moved to Harlem. But no, that we we have the car, so we can get out of the city and go ride bicycles mm. in nicer places. 
say you're part of the we're part of the problem problem <laughs> of greater is greater roads vehicle on roads damaging the roads and not paying enough for the petrol exactly maybe yeah. they could take up a donation of the gas station <laughs> that's an idea <laughs> contribute IMF to infrastructure yeah. of that kind of restructuring plan thank you amelia thank you shannon are you going to tell me what you read this week I read over Thanksgiving a short novel called Dear Committee Members by Julie Schumacher. It's a really quick read. It's a, it's an epistolary novel. It's in the form of letters, but they're letters of recommendation that are being written by this uh, creative writing professor at sort of a middling university. And it's a really, really funny academic satire, first of all, and sort of the plight of the humanities, underfunded humanities departments at most fiction. American universities. Fiction. Yeah, fiction. But it actually also sort of turns out to be a much, as much as it's sort of light and funny, it turns out to be like a bit of a deeper and sadder story in the end. Um, but it's really great. I highly recommend Don't it. Tell us the ending. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> what about you? I read uh, on holiday, as you do, Rise of the Robots. <laughs> Compared to the relative unautomated environment I was in, it was um, a very great read. We had Andrew Hill interview Martin Ford, the author, on a podcast uh, a couple of weeks back. And I struggle with the notion that at the same time as I can't get my computer to work and basic programs, that the robots are going to take over the world. Right. So they said, will it entrust them to drive our cars exactly. and our airplanes? So I and... sort of struggle with these two things that I can barely make technology work for me. And somehow it's, you know, there's this dystopian vision that he portrays where everything is automated and we are mere tools in the robots evil plans and also i think that the where i would uh and he raises this in the book where i i would differ and also i'm intrigued by is the notion of at what point human beings will start to control that destiny and when factories are being automated actually say you know what we'd rather have more workers and less people that are employed which will obviously require a whole lot of policy and government work. But it's fascinating to read about robots that are laying formwork for concrete of buildings. Um, they put them on rails and they lay down this nice bit of concrete that's perfect and it's dense and the workers don't get sick. So it's very interesting. Neil, what are you reading? I'm reading Once in a Great City, a Detroit story by David Marinus. Uh, he's a great journalist and he's taking a look at a very specific period in the early 60s in the city of Detroit. And so rather than focusing on the bankruptcy recently and sort of the fall, this is sort of the height of Detroit, the Mustang, Motown, you know, Martin Luther King comes to town, labor movement with sort of shadows of the doom to come. It's a really well done piece. So I have recently picked up a book by a friend of mine, George Magnus, economist who lives in London. Normally, we talk about China. He writes about China a lot, but he wrote a book called The Age of Aging. My responsibilities at Silvercrest are not all wrapped up in China. They're, they're global. And uh, he's writing about the aging populations globally and, and what they mean for, for the world economy, what they mean for global demand. And uh, even though these things unfold uh, very slowly, they have huge significance. You know, recently China decided to 
lift its one-child policy, and a lot of people speculate about what the impact that might have on China's demographics and the shape of its economy. But this trend towards aging populations and even shrinking populations is not something that's limited at all to China. It's something that is clearly evident in Europe. We're we're going to encounter it more and more in the United States. So、uh, so that's what I'm reading, and I'm finding it a very interesting read. I've just started *The Firm* by Duff McDonald. It's a 2013 book about the history of McKinsey.、Uh, it's quite fascinating. It's a, not only a history of McKinsey, but also really of American business, and it's a, it's a great read. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. You can go to ft.com/alphachat for show notes, links, and send us your own recommendation. You can call us and leave a voicemail: nine one seven five five one five zero one two. Email us at alphachat at ft dot com or tweet me at Shannon Parai S H A N N O N P A R E I L. The amazing Amy Keen produced and starred in today's show. Thanks, Amy. Thanks.